Welcome to the SAC Shining Lights SLP Schools podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Archibald from Western University. As you know, many speech language pathologists in Canada are employed in schools. Their job is to support children with communication disabilities in accessing the curriculum and achieving their academic and personal potential. It's a challenging job. So many schools, so many students, and not many SLPs. Across the country, SLPs are finding unique solutions to providing the best possible services to the students and school teams with whom they work. In this podcast, our guests describe their innovations in school-based speech-language pathology. Thanks for listening as we shine a light on some brilliant projects. Well, here we are on the Shining Lights uh, podcast today, and I'm really uh, pleased to welcome Debbie Mond. Debbie, would you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Thanks, Lisa. Um, I'm Debbie Mond. I'm a speech-language pathologist uh, living in Moncton, New Brunswick, which is part of the traditional Mi'kmaq territory, and I have a private practice uh, called Speech Path for You. And I split my time between a clinic here in Moncton and uh, Elsebukduk School, which is about an hour north of here uh, on Elsebukduk First Nation. And my company has the contract with the education authority in that community to provide their speech language services. All right. Thanks. Could you tell us more about uh, that school-based service then? What does the service delivery model look like there? Well, the service delivery model is one that I think is uh, an evolving one. Uh, We're August as we record this. So next month, I will head into my ninth school year at that school. And when I first was approached about providing some services. Uh, It was for a very specific project. They had some funding and wanted to get a better sense of their K-4 population. So translating for those in Ontario, that's a JK um, equivalent program. And I provided some basic assessment and intervention services there. And over the course of time, Um, working with the administration in that setting. Uh, They've asked for more services and and eventually uh, gave me the responsibility for providing all of the services uh, as far as speech and language goes for the school. So I provide some consultation with uh, teachers and EAs responsible for training in that setting do some direct services in terms of pull out small groups. Uh, I do, I'm really lucky to be able to work with some teachers who are quite keen to do some collaborative work. So we do full class um, language based vocabulary building storytelling. Um, I also wear a hat other than speech language pathology. In that setting, I'm the specialist services coordinator. So uh, coordinate education training um, and services for our rehab team, uh, as well as sort of, and the go-to between administration and the rehab team in terms of questions, in terms of 
needs, advocating for services and those kinds of things. All right, Debbie, thanks so much. So can you tell us a little bit more about those re those resources? It, it's a it, you're all in one site and 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 what are the resources that are available there in terms of supporting the the children's learning? Yeah, we are really lucky. Um, it's a community-based school. It is a K to eight school. Um, but we, as I said, also have uh, a JK program or a K4 program. We call it our nursery program. Um, so we have just under 400 students at the school. And from nursery to grade four, we have three classrooms at each grade level. Uh, the goal is to keep class sizes small. And it, it, the school is open to students who are from the Elsa Booktook community. Um, so that means I go to one school. I have a full-time speech pathologist who works with me. She's there full-time as well. We have a part-time OT, or sorry, part-time physio who works three days a week, full-time OT, two full-time OTPT assistants. Um, we have literacy support team, math support team, behavior intervention, autism uh, support, as well as all of the other services that you would expect to see at school. But our specialist team is quite large. We have a part-time psychologist who does educational testing and a full-time psychologist there who does some testing, but mostly intervention and counseling. Wow, that's quite a team. It is. I, I call us a, a little bit of a unicorn and we are much envied by uh, many of my colleagues who are uh, working in the provincial system and, and in private practice in other settings. Mm -hmm. It's a unique school itself. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the school itself? Um, it is a very unique school. It used to be band run, but in the, the last year and a half, two years, um, after a number of years of work on the part of the education authority, um, it is now an independent education authority. So the Elsa booked a First Nation Education Authority. They have a direct partnership with the federal government for funding, for services, and the school administration, the education authority, they decide basically what services, how, uh, how things happen within the school setting. Uh, they do work closely with the provincial government. Um, we are within the same geographical area as uh, Anglophone North School District. So lots of partnerships there and lots of, of liaising. Um, but the one of the big reasons that we have such a an extensive resource team is that the education authority recognized the, the unique and special needs of many of the students at the school and decided to put uh, their emphasis in ensuring that those services were there on an as need basis and so that we can provide those services directly to the students. Right. Wow. That, that sounds like a really interesting uh, place to be, Debbie. Um, you started out then uh, nine years ago, you said, you, you know, what are some what the major challenges that uh, you felt when you were coming in to uh, set up services there in that community? 
well, um, <laughs> I, I laugh because, um, you know, as a speech language pathologist who had been working for a number of years before coming into this setting, I've worked in other environments where you think, oh man, it feels like uh, administration is trying to put us into a box and um, I recognize funding and those kinds of things help to impose some of those restrictions. But then I come into this setting and they say, well, you're the expert, you, you set it up how you feel needs to be. So I really came in with, with a blank slate in many ways um, and have been lucky on one side and challenged on the other to, to create a system that I feel is responsive to, to the needs of the school. So in many cases, I do still feel that it is a work in progress, trying to, to respond to, to the changing population, to any of the changes that are coming in. Uh, for example, last school year was our first year in a brand new building. So we had lots of new facilities, lots of great space. So that changes what we're able to offer in terms of small groups, for example. So that's been a great caseload management tool because in the old school, we really were wanting for space. Mm -hmm. um, now we don't, don't have that in, in quite so many ways. Mm -hmm. Another change that we've seen with the new school is the introduction, or as I'm told, historically, a reintroduction of Mi'kmaq immersion. So the nursery students, the four-year-olds are coming in and they have 100% of their daily instruction in Mi'kmaq. Um, I know a few words and, and a few greetings, uh, but um, really don't know the language very well. So that's shifted how I am looking at trying to support the needs, the communication needs of, of that population, um, really looking at working much more closely with those teachers and EAs who are fluent in the language. And that's been one of the huge advantages of being at one school multiple days a week over many, many years um, is I get to, to work alongside, work with many members of the community who have been so very gracious with their time and very patient as well uh, to help guide in terms of culture, cultural sensitivity, uh, in terms of, of needs of the community uh, and understanding because it isn't my culture and, and I'm very aware of that. And so want to be not coming in imposing my views, my values. I come in with, with a skill set and I want to use that within the context and make sure that it's as authentic as, as possible. Yeah, interesting. I'm, I'm going to follow up with two. One quick question, I think, is uh, for the children arriving uh, into the K4 group, is their first language Mi'kmaq at that point? Um, interesting, because um, mostly yes, or no, sorry, mostly no. Um, and in the spring, we screen all of our kiddos who are coming into the school because it helps us uh, with planning um, mm -hmm. and sort of recognizing where there might be some particular needs for services. Um, 
and this year we screened in the range of 25 to 30 students uh, in June. And two children, I would actually say, are first language Mi'kmaq. Uh, that's what we would consider after consulting with my, my SLP colleague. Uh, their, certainly their language knowledge, because their parents speak Mi'kmaq at home and they have grandparents who also speak Mi'kmaq. Mm. Um, many other children are coming in with exposure to Mi'kmaq. Mm -hmm. um, there's been, I'm happy to say, such a great um, effort to, to reintroduce the language within the community. Um, and many of the not the parent generation, but more the grandparent generation um, are are working hard with their their grandchildren uh, to expose them to that language, mm -hmm. uh, and right. so they're they're learning they're learning more of the words and coming in with a little bit more of a basis. But mostly, um, the the students coming in are. Uh, English first language. I see. Right. Right. So you mentioned that, you know, you, you, you mentioned that you're not a member of the community. And so you, when you were arriving there, you had these opportunities to, to learn about the community from members that were there and, and, and began to think about, you know, how to situate your expertise within that. So what are some of the lessons? What are some of the, the things that really informed you about how to situate speech and language services in that setting? Well, my number one, um, I guess, approach, and certainly it's the advice that I give to new staff, new team members coming in, especially if they're coming in from outside the community, is um, we're born with two ears and one mouth, and we should use them in that proportion. Um, listening to understand is really, really been a valuable tool for me. Um, because it's it's by listening, by observing, I think that you really get to start to see what's going on, what's needed. And by not coming in, pushing my agenda, um, dictating, coming in as the expert saying, this is how it's going to be. I feel that I have earned some trust um, from the community members, from the people that I work with. And while I do have a, a strong skill set in speech and language, that's not all that's needed in this setting. Um, because as speech language pathologists, we know communication has to be functional. It has to be real for the individuals. And what is real to me isn't necessarily real and functional to, to the kids that I'm seeing. Um, and so really taking the time to, to understand what's needed, mm -hmm. to, to learn from my professional peers, has been probably the the best strategy mm -hmm. and having been there for so long <laughs> i it just the kids 
you know, my office in the new school is uh, adjacent to the main door where the students from nursery to grade three get dropped off on the bus um, in the morning. And kids will stop by my office on the way in and greet me and tell me how their hockey game went on the weekend or show me that they lost a tooth. Uh, and that's one of the, the greatest gifts that, that I have received from being in this one school over the course of a number of school years is I've gotten to know the kids and the grade seven students, the current grade seven students were the first students that I met as four-year-olds. And uh, many of them are still keen to come to speech language <laughs> services uh, and they want their turn. Uh, and so I've met I know families now, several siblings in, right. in the same household. And uh, it's really, it's been a really wonderful gift that way. And I think that I, I'd I hope that I, you know, give as much as I receive mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. setting. Yeah, very, very nice. Are there some particular guides or what are in place at the school to, to help guide uh, folks in uh, that are coming in from outside the community or within the school itself in terms of that cultural value and practice? Well, um, kind of have two, two sets of, I'll use the word tools loosely. Um, we'll say systems, um, that may be a better way to capture it. Uh, over the last three or four years, I've worked with my SLP physio and OT colleagues and the literacy and math support teams um, to refine. And uh, again, it's a, a, a work in progress, uh, a, a system of screening um, our students who are coming new into the school. So at the nursery and kindergarten level, uh, it allows us to, to get to know the students a little bit before school actually starts. Uh, this year, one of the things we were able to introduce is uh, we had a, a school bus parked outside on our screening days. So the kids got to go in uh, with their parents on the school bus. Uh, so this big yellow bus wasn't quite so scary in those settings, but it's... Um, it's a screening process that is very much informal. We've derived it from, um, you know, norm-based um, information, but we're also always trying to tweak it a little bit to make it more culturally sensitive and responsive. Mm -hmm. But as I said, that allows us to get to know the students and their needs so that when we are planning for the upcoming school year, we have this information, can meet with school and education authority um, administration to really be able to make sure that we're putting things in place. Beyond that, we have uh, what is called the Medicine Wheel Student Index, which uh, is developed or was developed by uh, Dr. Lori Cox, uh, who is the director of our Eastern Door Clinic. Um, and this tool is one that we use on an ongoing basis, but every spring, it's a tool that is distributed to the classroom teachers and the teachers are asked to provide some feedback on 
a very large number. I haven't counted the, the domains, but uh, a large number of domains um, as they relate to students' uh, successes, where the students excel and where there might be some gaps. And so each classroom teacher is asked to, to look at that tool. Each specialist in their domain is asked to look at that tool. And then as a group of specialists, along with the administration, we meet every spring and we talk about every student in the school uh, and use that information along with the other information that is available to us to help plan for individual student needs, whether they need uh, an assessment for speech and language or for physio, whether they need some more support in literacy or in math, as well as a collective. Um, for example, there might seem to be in a given year a particular need in a, in a particular area, so that might shift or help administration sort of shift their thinking about realignment of resources. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really quite an interesting tool in the sense that the goal is that no child is falling in the cracks mm -hmm. um, and that we, each child is, is treated as their own person and that we're looking at the whole child, not just problems that might exist or you know, skills that they might be missing, but that we look at their gifts, where they're excelling, as well as where we can provide some extra support. Mm -hmm. Will we be able to um, link to a, a picture of the medicine wheel itself that you're using with the show notes? Uh, I will double check with Dr. Cox that it's okay to to send along a copy of that and and uh, we'll be able to I'm sure be able to give at least a bit of a snapshot of of what that looks like. Yeah, that would be that would be lovely. I'm sure the listeners would like to see it. Can you just so it has you mentioned that it has a number of domains it has that you're really looking at um, each of those areas. Yes. So think of the whole person and what makes the whole person uh, skills in math, skills in reading, skills in um, you know physical education. Uh, we also look at their communication skills. At you know, do they need glasses or do they need? Uh, or is that something that we need to do? The teachers commenting that they seem to be squinting or they're complaining of headaches. Well, oops, maybe we need to take a look at that and and make sure that we're making arrangements. Uh, or helping parents make arrangements to get their vision checked. Mm. Um, I have a portable audiometer, so uh, I do often get uh, referrals from, from the teachers or from parents themselves. Uh, you know, my child seems to, to be having some difficulty, so we can screen their hear hearing at the school setting, and if need be, then we, we refer on. But mm -hmm. it also takes a look at social-emotional, um, artistic, um, as I said, a whole range of, of domains. Right, right. And uh, it, that that's a big investment. How does that work in practice? How do, how does it happen? <laughs> a lot of coffee. Yeah. 
Um, and a lot of teamwork. Um, the resource teachers are great. Uh, one in particular, she and I have worked together uh, over the last number of years to uh, refine the, the data entry and data collection. And um, she actually spends, I'm sure, many, many hours, uh, many long hours inputting all of the information. It is an electronic um, format for mm -hmm. the teachers to be able to go in. Mm -hmm. So we do training with the teachers every year just to uh, refresh their memories because right. our, our memories over the course of the year <laughs> tend to fade a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so we always have a little bit of a training time, just review of the tool. If there have been any changes made, then we, we address those. Um, same thing with the specialist team. And then typically the teachers uh, and specialists are given about a month. Um, and we time that with any kind of uh, deadlines for reporting at the end of the school year, because there are always those. Um, so we try to make sure that they have their time to, to really uh, deliberate and get their information in, in a non-rushed kind of fashion. Also allowing ourselves enough time to take, receive all of the data and, and compile that and get it into a report format that um, is a little bit more user-friendly as we go through uh, our meeting day. And it has been a full day. Um, although after last this last spring, I thought, Maybe we should take a look at at breaking it up a little bit differently because uh, it is a lot of information to cover in in a short period right. of time, and we want to make sure that we're doing um, our best, putting our best effort in. Right. But the whole team would review the four hundred students. Yes. There uh, that uh, uh, in a in a long chunk of time. You know, yes. A full day, and maybe you have to think about whether that's the right way to do that. But that's the way that would happen. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is uh, in addition to sort of regular report cards, or uh, that's, yes, that teachers yes, it are all, you know always feeling a crunch around. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and and then this is in addition to that. Yes, it is. Wow. Yeah. This has some ties to, you mentioned uh, Dr. Cox as the creator. That's, uh, she's from your. Uh, Eastern Door Clinic. Right. Okay. Yes. And so, and there's a connection between you in some way. There, yes. Um, the Eastern Door Clinic is um, separate, but not really. Uh, it is uh, a a standalone clinic. Uh, Dr. Cox is the, the director and there is uh, a small staff attached to the clinic, but the clinical staff doing the assessments for this, it, think of it as uh, a complex case clinic. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are referrals are made to the clinic um, for students within the community who are struggling in multiple areas, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's development, whether that's academic, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it is mental health, 
significant struggles in multiple areas where uh, parents are looking for support, uh, guardians, grandparents are, are looking for support or they're identified at the school as well. So that's where the connect part of the connection is, but the clinical team conducting those assessments is the same clinical team that provides services at the school. Um, It is the first clinic east of Manitoba uh, to have engaged in a process for assessing fetal alcohol syndrome uh, disorder. And although that isn't the only diagnosis that that we're looking at assessing for, um, it certainly is one of them. There is a separate clinic in Dieppe um, locally here, and they are the Center of Excellence uh, for FASD. And that is their their sole diagnostic responsibility. Mm -hmm. And there are some some definite links between the Eastern Door Clinic and the Center of Excellence. Um, but uh, interesting. Yeah. Yes. Can we, we'll come back to the medicine wheel if we can for a, a minute, Debbie. And I'm thinking about now um, how you're using that to inform your own speech and language programming. Um, yeah, it's, if you think about, uh, the concept of two-eyed seeing, the the idea that there is the clinical side of what where our training uh, I draw from my training, but then there's also the cultural and spiritual uh, side of of the community and those needs and my responsibility as a clinician to integrate to respect that first of all um, and to integrate that into to my work Um, and as I said earlier uh, the notion of of listening more than you're talking to really be able to understand how what's important Uh, and I mean in some ways that's not all that different from from what I would be doing in any other setting, um, to be true to the work that I'm doing, I should really be listening to what are those needs? Uh, what are the big referral questions? Uh, and because my practice is pediatric, what are the parents or guardians really looking for out of mm-hmm. this process? Mm-hmm. But the extra layer is really trying to be culturally aware, culturally sensitive, recognizing that, um, there are differences and some of say the vocabulary or some of um, the, the language structures that might be important to me from my training and clinical background aren't necessarily so uh, from, from a different cultural or perspective background. And one of the, the reasons that I have on my to-do list learning Mi'kmaq is to better understand some of those differences because there are grammatical differences. Mm-hmm. There are uh, certainly 
linguistic and phonological differences that uh, I feel it's my responsibility to learn about and better understand, uh, especially with uh, the, the reintroduction of Mi'kmaq immersion, uh, because as, as the students start to speak both languages more, um, then I feel it's it's my responsibility to better understand that and and be able to to make the necessary adjustments in my practice for that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you're that there is some direct services going on, uh, and I'm just wondering there, you know, what are some of the tools that you find you'll that you you know effective or the the right fit for your uh, community group, uh, you know, what, you know, what, what do those sessions kind of look like? What are the kinds of goals you're addressing there? Um, uh, vocabulary building is certainly one storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. and that comes not only from my training as a speech language pathologist, but that's very much, uh, a cultural, uh, norm as well. Um, so storytelling is a, a big part of, of what I do. Um, I love wordless picture books. And that's a tool that I've worked with, uh, especially with some of the nursery teachers. It's, it's great because it doesn't matter whether it's English, Mi'kmaq, French, or whatever other language. Um, it, it's, it's a great tool. Uh, I use story champs, uh, mm-hmm. as a program a lot, mm-hmm. and that's one of the tools that I use for some of my, my full class based work mm-hmm. and, uh, integrating a lot of storytelling and, and the vocabulary within that. And we have so much fun and the kids really look forward to, to those times. Um, nice, nice. Now, what about the challenges of assessment then, Debbie? Can you talk about, uh, uh, you know, how, how in, in the setting where you've got the uh, Mi'kmaq um, uh, immersion uh, yes. going on and you're, you're asked to, you know, determine if this child is having difficulties with language learning or not, you know, what are the challenges? How are you managing there? Well, um, not surprising to many of my colleagues who work in Indigenous communities or in other minority communities, uh, one of the big challenges is that the tools that we have to use as professionals are not normed on the population that I'm working with. Um, In the case of Eastern Door Clinic, where I am required to provide percentile ranks and and some other very concrete information for uh, the various places that my reports end up through that setting, um, I'm strongly encouraged to use the tools, the everyday tools like the self, like the tills, mm-hmm. uh, like the Goldman Fristo and report on those um, numbers, but it's always with a little bit of discomfort that I do that. And obviously with, you know, um, a line that, that does state that these uh, tools are not normed on this particular population. Um, 
I do end up using a, a combination of tools in both formal and informal, because I do find that the informal tools allow for a little bit more uh, freedom of movement, if you will. Uh, I would love to be able to have some kind of an informal tool that is truly uh, designed with a cultural and uh, linguistic uh, perspective that is uh, more fitting to the community. That's, mm -hmm. that would be one of my long-term dreams, right. um, but time and energy and all of those things come into play, but someday yes. that would be my goal. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're sitting down with a, with a child like that, what's your favorite quick little assessment task that you do that, you know, really, you know, this is, you know, gets a child talking. This is what tells me about their talking. What do you find? Oh, do you know, I have this wheel. It's a wooden spinning wheel that I got at Ikea. And I have this overlay that I put on it. Um, I have a few different overlays and that's what I, because the kids love to spin the wheel <laughs> and I usually put it at the other end of my office. They have to get up and they have to, to move around and, and go spin it and come back. And so it gives me an idea of, you know, following directions and, you know, how easily are they able to sit and how easily are they able to shift their focus from getting up and across and coming back. Uh, but I have uh, sort of an adaptation of, um, uh, the expanding expression tool. Uh, so some questions around vocabulary, and then I have some, some stuff about WH questions. And mm -hmm. so whether it's some storytelling or some vocabulary based stuff that really does give me um, a good mm -hmm. view of, of where they're at and uh, mm -hmm. maybe where our, our work needs to, to delve a little bit deeper. Uh, because it is, as I said, an activity that they just love and, and ask for, because if I put it up high on, on the shelf, uh, out of reach, they, they know it's there and they see it's there. Well, can we spin the wheel today? <laughs> Lovely. Really, really nice. And I think, uh, you, you had said earlier that, uh, there are some particular uh, vocabulary areas where the, you know, the, the community really has strengths in, and, uh, and I think that, um also you know is an important consideration right is not Absolutely. so much the sort of standardized vocabulary because there might be real vocabulary strengths in some and so that you might be an indicator yes um this is a community where many of uh the guardians uh parents grandparents aunts and uncles are fishermen uh, so they can tell you the difference between lobster and crab and snow crab and uh, different kinds of fishing vessels, animals. Uh, that's where I've been very fortunate to learn most of the, the Mi'kmaq vocabulary that I have learned um, is with animals and lots of land-based learning. Um, and it is, the school is in a rural community. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, some of the, while, of course, um, many of the, the students do get to come to Moncton to movies and hop, skip and jump and McDonald's and those kinds okay. of things. Um, they do spend a lot of time at the beach and swimming. And, uh, so the vocabulary is, uh, 
is reflective of that. Right, right. And I think that's an important consideration in, in assessment. It certainly is, yeah. yeah. Well, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but maybe you'll kind of sum us up. What's your next challenge, uh, Debbie? Uh, you said you're, it's always evolving, your service. What, what, what are you working on now? Well, um, as we head into September, um, I do need to turn my attention back to my caseload because I've <laughs> taken a, a little bit of a break from that for the last few weeks, mm. but to take a look at how to really, it's, it is a big caseload. Um, I have uh, in the range of 150 students uh, on the caseload that of course I'm not solely responsible for. I do have my full-time colleague, but between the two of us, how do we manage that? How do we do it in, uh, a, how do we provide good services in a responsible, responsive, uh, culturally appropriate way to make sure that the students are getting what they need? Um, as I said, one of my long-term dreams is to, uh, to develop uh, or to refine, I guess, is probably the better word, the, the screening tool that we use uh, so that it is a little bit more authentic. And my personal challenge uh, is to, to learn more Mi'kmaq because, as I said before, as speech-language pathologist in that setting, I do feel it's my responsibility to, to learn more about the language and to be able to communicate a little bit more effectively um, than I am. I can greet you right. and I can say good morning but um, uh, I do need to learn a little bit more about the language hmm. and that that brings us nicely into you know a, a question about uh, colleagues who might be working in settings where they're from a different community or the individuals they're serving are from a different community what what's a piece of advice you'd give to them find somebody from the community that can be an ally mm. um, and listen to them <laughs> to, really, like, to, to learn, to learn from them um, and, and not to be afraid to, to ask questions um, because that's one of the things that I have learned that um, my colleagues from the community are really proud of their culture and really want to share that culture and really want um, want to want people to to want to learn and want to understand. We have a a great opportunity here in the next few weeks. There are powwows in most of the First Nations communities throughout the summer and the Elsa Booktook powwow is Labor Day weekend uh, mm -hmm. and that is open to everybody as as I've been reminded so uh, it's a great opportunity um, for non-community members to go and to experience some of the beauty and and, and joy of of the music and the dancing and the drumming and uh, the culture and to really start to appreciate um what is what is there uh, so very close to home? Yeah, thanks, Debbie. Thanks for that. All right, let's let's finish up now. You know, with just a couple of the final questions that we have um, for for all our guests. You know, how how do you and your colleagues support one another in the work that you do? Um, 
<laughs> we we have a uh, uh, text chat circle <laughs> where we we send out random messages. We meet on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the the things that I'm looking at for this year is is how to shift that, how to get better support as our team gets bigger, mm -hmm. because that was certainly something last year. Uh, there were several new team members and this fall we'll have some new team members through maternity leaves and some other uh, life situations. Um, we'll have new faces around the table. Uh, so trying to look at, do we do case studies? Do we do something akin to rounds? Uh, but we do have regular opportunities to, to sit and to share and to brainstorm um, and then there are hopefully, uh, with COVID restrictions, the way they are, and maybe loosening a little bit more, there are always opportunities for, uh, some social, uh, gatherings within the school. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and those are pretty, pretty special opportunities too. For sure. For sure. And can I invite you to tell us about one of your favorite outside of work activities? Um, travel i collect passport stamps ah <laughs> nice well that that's always a a really get away from it and change your headset uh, absolutely kind of activity for sure yeah, yeah. Debbie, that's it's been a lovely uh, conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, hearing about the work that you're doing uh, and uh, and and the the program and plans that you have in place. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the SAC Shining Lights SLP Schools podcast. You can find all podcasts, transcripts, and links to the episode resources on the SAC website. That's at sac-oac.ca. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or you'd like to suggest a guest, please email the host, Lisa Archibald, at larchiba at uwo.ca. That's L-A-R-C-H-I-B-A at uwo.ca. You can listen to our podcast on all of the major podcast servers. If you liked this episode, be sure to give it a thumbs up on your platform and share it through your social media and other channels.